Thanks, Johan. Um, we're going to try and run on time for this session. Uh, I'll talk for 15 minutes and introduce the next speaker, who's going to be Peter Anderson, and then each of our panel members will speak for 10 minutes. And then there'll be a, a conversation between the panelists. Uh, Daniel McEwen will respond with two questions, and then the um, panel will be thrown open to the audience. So do keep in mind questions. Um, our subject, artists' institutions, is not only a tongue twister, but in pairing these terms, it enacts a syntactical clash. The two elements, artists and institutions, in their coupling confront one another in an undecided hierarchy. I hope this afternoon this panel can clarify which is the principal term in this collision and which is its modifier. Or, as Humpty Dumpty said to Alice, the question is, which is to be the master? That's all. My involvement dates back to the 1970s and 1980s when I first participated in the formation of various different women's art organisations, then the Art Workers' Union, out of which sprang Art Space and later NAVA. As an art historian, my response to this syntactical clash is to think about origins. And in this following rather brief outline of that history across the 20th century, I've excluded artist groups based on a common style art movement or art practice as these distract from core issues of what unites artists as activists internationally. And I hope some of my points resonate with issues raised by Helen um, in her respondent. Charles Harrison and Paul Wood's Art in Theory, an anthology of changing ideas, includes many of the manifestos and debates about organisations that artists developed largely in times of crisis, beginning with the German and Soviet organisations that sprang up in the decades following the revolutions in Moscow and Berlin and other European centres. These artists sought to organise in order to participate in building a new society. For instance, in 1918, the German November Group declared we believe it is our special duty to gather together all significant artistic talent and dedicate it to the collective well-being of the nation. We belong to no party or no class. And then they ended their appeal to all modernists, calling upon Cubists, futurists and expressionists, join us. In the 1930s, as Stalinism took a tight grip on the artist unions in the Soviet bloc, a new wave of artist organisations emerged in the West. The London-based Artist International Association had a membership that peaked in the late 1940s to somewhere around 1,000. It acquired permanent pre premises where it held exhibitions and events for well over three decades. In the US, 
The artist union there was active during the Roosevelt New Deal era, identifying with the struggles of the organised labour movement and ran campaigns around artist rights, stage demonstrations and exhibitions. Closer to our own era, the organisations born in the 60s, like the London-based Artist Placement Group, uh, conceived by Barbara Stevini in 1965 and then developed with John Latham along with Barry Flanagan and others. Uh, between 1966 and 1980, APG negotiated placements for artists lasting up to several years within various industries. And it's a bit, it has certain similarities to the Art and Working Life program that ran in Australia uh, with the support of AC2EU and Australia Council in the 80s. But back to early 1969, when the Art Workers Coalition was formed in New York out of the protests against uh, Museum of Modern Art's high-handed treatment of an artist. Over an intense series of meetings, demands were drawn up for artists' rights, museum reform, the representation of women and black artists, and for actions against the war in Vietnam. It aimed to improve the economic position of artists through campaigns for rental fees, resale rights, and a trust fund. And amongst its ranks were such luminaries as Robert Morris, Lucy Lippard, and Carl Andre. At the height of the Vietnam War in 1970, Art Forum ran a questionnaire asking artists about their political commitments. Among those who replied was Don Judd, who criticised the Art Workers Coalition. He wrote, I think there should be an artist's organisation functioning as an interest group, but one thing of the several that I have against the Art Workers Coalition is that they were using art for all sorts of things. Judd objected to their affirmative action policies, arguing that it should, that they should concern themselves with questions of, they should, excuse me, they shouldn't concern themselves with questions of value, but rather, in his words, an artist's organisation should focus on negotiating, in particular, for museum board representation for artists and museum staff. By 1975, the Art Workers Coalition was succeeded by the Artists' Meeting for Cultural Change in New York, which protested the bicentennial exhibitions based on the Rockefeller collection and picketed the Whitney Museum. Ian Byrne, then based in New York as part of Art and Language, was active, as many others were, in the uh, Artists' Meeting for Cultural Change. And at the time, he wrote, um, the picket was a more potent model for artwork than readjusting your painting style to the more radical climate. In the 1970s, the climate in the Australian art world had become radicalised likewise by wider political events. Museums were occupied and boycotts were held. As sculpture and painting were abandoned for a range of conceptual, informal and non-museum practices, Artists sought to establish spaces to exhibit and perform the kind of work that state museums ignored or refused to show. Beginning in 1975 with the Experimental Art Foundation in Adelaide, artists and theorists set up structures to encourage new approaches to the visual arts and to quote from the current EAF website, to promote the idea of art as radical and only incidentally aesthetic. EAF, IMA, Artspace, ACCA and PICA 
were all born out of this era of anti-war, indigenous and social liberation movements. Artists were the major voices in those early days and frequently the directors of these organisations, thinking of uh, Noel Sheridan, who appears in this poster, who directed uh, EAF from 1975 to 1980, and then again at Pika in 1989 to 1993, a remarkable record, really. Um, women artists also played a crucial role in forming these artists' institutions, as well as uh, their own women's art organisations, ranging from publishing to the women's uh, art registry, which continues to this day. Um, perhaps part of the success of these uh, long-term feminist organisations was their interdisciplinary focus that ranged right across film workers, photographers, performance artists to needle workers. Um, at the same time, the Sydney Biennale became a major target for highlighting issues of female and Australian artist representation, as well as issues of artist rights. Um, for instance, the second Lip editorial in 1978 argued that an ongoing critique of existing art institutions is essential to feminist politics in order to oppose the prevailing bias of patriarchal art. That same year, the Art Workers Union was formed initially in Sydney and it was staged uh, across major battles with the Sydney Biennale. And in that respect, I think the history, the recent history that Helen has referred to um, has this quite deep um, uh, historical base. Um, and it was out of that struggle that art space emerged though I've noticed these origins have dropped off their website. Uh, the local emergence of artist-run initiatives dates from a bit later. For instance, in Sydney, First Draft was established in 1986 with seed funding from the Australia Council, and the directors were and still are all participating artists, practising artists. Then in the 90s when institutional critiques swept through the art world, um, some artists began to relocate their practices back in the museums and the more arcane, the better. Today, as artists come through the neoliberal modern universities with their benchmarks, vision statements, KPIs, such a history of activism seems quite remote, yet maybe today there's all the more reason for uh, reminding ourselves that that was uh, so much of the origin of these artists' organisations. The public face of artists' organisations vary from the architect design Kunst Hall of Acker to the shared warehouse complexes of IMA and art space. Most hold no collections, so I was surprised to find on the various website references to collections creeping in the back door in the form of archives of artist books and of public art of one sort or another. I guess the one consistent element is that they remain precariously wedged between state museums, university galleries, ARIES, or battling for the same ever-diminishing resources from the public and private sector. So some key questions for our panellists. Why do artists create their own institutions? 
Today, what kind of buffer do artist organisations offer from the marketplace? And how might they work critically to engage with the very processes of specialisation, separation and abstraction that support the forces and relations of the market? How do artists' initiatives critique other institutions? Or are they, in fact, locked into that very same network of collectors and exhibitions and show the very same art that state museums exhibit and collect? And finally, what can artists institutions do that other organisations cannot? And before uh, leaping to our panel, I'd just like to finish with a quick response to this question. For it seems that the selection and valuing of contemporary art by artists is a remarkably persistent tradition with succeeding artistic communities choosing, discarding and transforming the components of an inherited repertoire. In this respect, I think artist institutions are really uniquely placed to select and program contemporary art. For artists are more acute about the contemporary than any critic, curator or museum director. Um, perhaps this is the basis of a new kind of academy. Um, so I think that's the greatest strength of artists' organisations. Thank you very much. And I'd like to introduce Peter Anderson. Peter, um, who works as an independent practitioner in the field of writing and the visual arts. He has published poetry and short fiction, essays, reviews, exhibition catalogues, as well as curating and producing um, exhibitions and performances. And Johan, could you come up and put on the slides? Thank you. Over the past two decades, his writing and curatorial research has focused on issues in cultural policy, copyright law, artist books alternative, and artist-run spaces. And he's a former board member of the IMA, and he is currently curating the exhibition Ephemeral Traces, Brisbane's artist-run scene in the 1980s for the University of Queensland Art Museum. Could you welcome Peter? Thanks. Um, no, I need to make that go. Okay. I've actually got, I actually wrote two um, and then put one away, but I'm going to start with the beginning of the one I wrote first that I threw away. I'd like to say that I have the documentary photographs, but I'm afraid I don't. And even if I did, I'm not sure they'd reveal all that much. What would you see? Um, hang on, where's the first one? Me on PowerPoint. I also like just working with a couple of felt pens. It's much nicer. This work, or rather these documentary images, was shown in an exhibition I held at the Chanel Cinema, in the Chanel Cinema foyer in early 1978. The work here was part of a bigger project that I would have called something like a public text intervention. So what it actually is, is it's a text, it's on the door, it's called Untitled Pause Poem. 
And this is the text that is on a tiny little, the little white dot on the door that's causing these two people to pause as they enter the library. And the text says, you pause as you open the door to the library to read this poem and then move on. It's a kind of project that is about making text, making people stop, do stuff. Um, it was a poetry project, it was an art project. For me in the late 70s, there wasn't any distinction between art stuff, poetry stuff, music stuff, protest stuff, activism stuff. It's all mixed up. And that's one of the things that makes that period of time particularly interesting for me. This is a work that's come back into my life now. It's actually about that pause between being outside and being in the archive, that moment you have there. And um, these early works are kind of resonating with what I'm doing now uh, as I try and put a show together about the 80s, which is a little bit later. I'm kind of putting a show together about a period that misses all the bits that I was involved in there. 1975, um, we, Terry's paper started on that, the IMA. Newspaper headline, they aim to explain modern art. That was the newspaper headline that explained what the IMA was about. Um, at the same, in the same year, Griffith University starts, the Queensland Film and Drama Centre, Griffith Artworks, these kind of things all kick off. Four triple ZFM, an FM public radio station kicks off. Uh, and it was my last year at high school. I got the art prize at Wong High, and when I went, went with the art prize, my book voucher, I went to the Queensland Book Depot and I bought two books and they informed a lot of what I did in the 70s. One was the Futurist Manifestos, and the other was a book by Adrian Henry called Total Art. And in a sense, if I had an art practice, it had nothing to do with, it, it may occasionally have had to do with making drawings and things, but mostly it had to do with things like that. Much more things like that than, uh, so it was kind of like that kind of a thing. It was very activist in a way. Uh, and, um, I think what's, what I'm interested in trying to deal with in the exhibition project that I'm working on and in talking about what I'm doing today is um, the whole notion of what Terry has called infrastructural activism. And the problem that I'm trying to deal with in a way is where the art starts or where the art, or rather, where the art stops. Is it where the art starts or where the art stops? This whole kind of notion of what's the relationship between the infrastructural kind of activities that you're engaged in and art practice itself. Is the art only in the kind of images? Is it only in these kinds of little documented projects? Or is it in the actual activity that you're engaged in? Um, uh, the, the artist's institute that we've been talking about um, are for me partly tied to my, my kind of attempt to kind of make, make sense of the move from alternative spaces to institutions by artists. And it's actually through that sort of transition that I want to quickly jump. And it's really important because we're, we're in this kind of moment now. If you can read that and you can read those headlines, that's 1986. It sounds like a set of headlines for today. And that's what's really interesting. In the 70s, my engagement with that kind of mix of activities meant that I had to find a space for things to happen. So far as I was concerned, there really wasn't a space in, in Brisbane for that to happen. Even the IMA wasn't really accessible to me uh, as a very young, untrained, never went to art college kind of artist or poet or whatever. 
Um, so one of the things I did was I got involved and set up initially a thing called the Poets' Union. It didn't last very long. In 1979, hang on, we've jumped one. Um, in 1979, this is another attempt to set up an artist's organisation. In fact, it's, it's the attempt to set up the Art Workers' Union in Brisbane. And it's interesting, the meeting happened at the IMA. Um, and here's another one, again, at the IMA. And I was really pleased when I found this. This is actually the, the original copy that was made to photocopy for the flyer for the meeting to form the Art Workers Union Queensland. And it wasn't until I found this again that I realised that oh, I'm a signatory to this damn thing. So it's like, I've been involved, that's one, what I was doing. And in a sense, that was part of my practice as much as any of the other kind of stuff. And then we go to a third one. And by the time we get to here, I'd started to do academic work, and so I had this role of being the chair. So this is the, and this wasn't at the IMA, um, but it's the thing that shifted us from the Art Workers Union to the Art Workers Alliance. And the reason we shifted was because the Art Workers Union had as one of its objectives the, the intention to be a, uh, a trade union, and it also was very closed. And in setting up the Art Workers Alliance, we had to make this transition to make a wider organisation to essentially build an infrastructure in which we could work. And the, the real sense was that, that wasn't there, there weren't support structures. And one of the things, one of the first most significant things the Art Workers Alliance did was it started to publish iLine. And iLine, if you like, is the ongoing um, thing that's come out of that. It's still there. The Alliance actually went bust a few years ago and it's gone. But it's the kind of organisation that we could do with now, but we don't have. And that's a kind of really interesting uh, state of affairs. Now, I'm going to jump from those kind of organisations to the notion of spaces, if you like. Um, and uh, this is a flyer for an Artworkers Alliance event called The Politics of Space. Um, and on the panel were uh, Virginia Barrett, um, Janelle Hurst, who both were involved in artist-run spaces, Sue Kramer, who was the director of the IMA, and uh, Noel Frankham, who was the director of the Visual Arts Craft Fund at the time. And this particular forum really sat for me as a moment in this kind of artist infrastructure, art infrastructure kind of debate, in part because it falls at the end of the period of time between 1983 and about 1987 when the Australia Council made a significant change from alternative spaces to artist-run initiatives, and this is the kind of piece that I wrote afterwards, and that's kind of like a footnote, if you like. Um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting is that the infrastructure we've got, we have art institutions, and the IMA could almost be seen as that, and often is by people involved in the artist run scene. Um, there's a distinction now between, there's layers in the alternative spaces context, and they're, a, they're mainly a product of policy decisions, and I don't think that that's been kind of teased out substantially enough. Um, I mean, the debates around it, even around the, say, in Sydney, with the form, formation of the art space are really interesting, because there were there were at least three other artist runs that were around at the time, and there was a, an, a conference that First Draft organised, which was all about the kind of models that were being used and whether they should have picked up some of the existing artist runs or whether they should invent art space and so on. So there's been all these debates internally. And um, that's one of the things that some of the work I'm doing now is trying to get to. But the main project I'm working on is um, kind of mapped out, and this is again, it's another footnote, mapped out in this eyeline article, so it's kind of nice, it's in eyeline. Um, and it's um, 
really trying to say, how do I make an exhibition about infrastructural activism, if you like? How do I make an exhibition that actually has artworks, but also tries to somehow present the things that are much more ephemeral? Um, it's, uh, it's actually really quite challenging, because you've got to work out whether you're dealing with things that just, like, that are perceived primarily to be institutional, whether they be artist institutions or other things, or things that are related to works. It's that kind of interesting tension between works and actions. And I, great. And that's one of the real challenges. So that's a summary of what that project is trying to do. Um, but if I was to add one thing to this debate, I'd say this. Artists themselves have been constructed as mini-institutions. As one would say, we're all small business people now. Post-2000, when artists have had to apply for an ABN and set themselves up as a business to be treated as a professional artist, means that we don't just have art institutions, artist institutions, we have artists as institutions. And I think that's a really interesting challenge for us to confront. And I'll just leave you with this last slide, which is just... And the title of that work is very pertinent. Uh, our I next. I got to write a, a note about this space, and all I got was a lousy T-shirt. I wrote a letter of support. It was the last thing I did before I left Brisbane. Wrote a letter of support, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. This is the farm T-shirt. It's my favourite bit of ephemera. Um, our next speaker is Sean Dockray, uh, who is an artist living in Melbourne, founding director of Telic Arts Exchange in LA, and initiated the autonomous self-organised pedagogical projects, the public school and 4ARG.org. His writings have been published in Cabinet, Volume and Bidoon, and he has essays included in Undoing Property, Sternberg Press, and Contestations, Learning from Critical Experiments in Education, Bedford Press, and he's currently a PhD student at the VCA. Thank you, Sean. Hello. <laughs> um, 10 minutes is just enough time for me to blow off all my nervous energy, so <laughs> I've written it so I don't forget anything. Is this a... Yeah, okay. Um, so my background is, uh, as you can probably guess, not in Australia. Um, it was the punk and hardcore music scene of the American Northeast, which is Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and down to Baltimore and DC. And I probably don't need to explain DIY to you, but basically it meant um, that kids were making the music, promoting it, organizing shows, organizing tours, running independent or pirate radio stations, writing fanzines, becoming political, and so on. Um, this was in the 1990s. So an important part of the story, which seems absolutely mundane now, is how the internet was very quickly incorporated into all of these aspects of the subculture. 
uh, from chat rooms to email lists, message boards, online zines, web radio, and file sharing. Um, I won't be talking explicitly about the dynamics between institutions and the internet, but I imagine uh, it might be a conversation topic when we converse. Um, at the time, I never would have called any part of any of that um, an institution. But at the same time, I also can't now talk about self-instituting without referring to that activity. In my preparation, I realized that I am a bit of a pathological institutionalizer. <laughs> the, f the first one, which was unfortunately unrealized, was with someone named John Four, who would go on to become a very well-known young adult author. And it was a temporary museum of reproductions of Joseph Cornell boxes. Since then, I've been a part of setting up a survey into architectural working conditions, a writing platform, an architecture radio program, a video game system for five joysticks, an online library, an art gallery, a school, a public monument to FM radio, and here, a commune for artificial intelligences. Uh, so to look at two of them a little bit more closely, the public school, which the first slide I haven't mentioned, but it's sort of a cross-section through six years of, um, of classes that have been offered through this project called the public school. Um, and it began as a diagram. And its proposition was, what if there was a school that had no curriculum? What if people proposed things that they wanted to learn about, and the classes came from there, and not from the experts or administrators who usually run things? Moreover, what if every aspect of the school was public, by which I mean not just visible or accessible, but reconfigurable by its constituent public? So that people rotate between roles of student and teacher and administrator, passing around power like a ball. Usually, the public school uses the internet not as a mechanism for broadcasting knowledge the way that it might sort of be incorporated into online education uh, by universities, um, but rather as a tool for proposing, shaping, and organizing classes that bring people together in a space. As the diagram came to life, like a score being performed, the school took shape. It's generated an evolving curriculum and produced publics. Um, my project here for Imaginary Accord has been visible only as an open Wi-Fi network where visitors might peer into the life of a commune for artificial intelligences. The background for it is a series of reflections and projections about mortality, computation, mind uploading, mind imaging, with the premise that whatever the technological possibilities for the transfer and computational storage of thoughts, memories, gestures, and consciousnesses are, those possibilities are being planned and delimited by capital. The AI commune that you can see through the Wi-Fi is itself a kind of speculative institution. But the real institution is the open source software project. In other words, it situates the code repository as the site of ethical and philosophical, and yes, technological debates about the, the future. Go back to the first slide. 
So why might artists institutionalize? In some economic or political situations, I don't think they have a choice. This is, of course, the threat for many that's looming over this conference as government support is redirected. Um, and there's also the romantic sentiment you often hear, which is partially true, that it's a gritty New York in the 1960s and 70s, or kids in poor neighborhoods who are making the vital art, and not really uh, the comfortable middle class people enjoying the fruits of a resources boom. I'm not saying this to say austerity makes for better art. Definitely not. Um, people need security, control over their lives, and a sense of community, all of which are under threat from the politics of austerity and privatization. But the need to self-organize because you're excluded from networks of power can instill a sense of belonging and camaraderie and a fearlessness a willingness to experiment and to support others that sometimes seems to be in short supply in an ecology of dependent institutions, each protecting their own slice of the pie. The power of interdependency rather than the dependency on power. Um, usually, I find myself pulled towards art that is not particularly legible as art. And I think this is why I feel drawn toward well, institutional forms as well. Um, to expand on this a bit, I'll conclude on a series of imperfect uh, but hopefully useful programmatic statements about instituting. First, um, an institution is a tool or a resource. It is pre-production. It can be used to do other things, to act in different ways, to speak in public as a different kind of body. An institution can will itself into existence. It is its own proposition, a fiction in the world literally written and acted out. Sometimes it acts and sometimes it's acted upon. An institution can't be framed. It can't be photographed. You can't draw a circle that will totally enclose it. Once it exists, you realize that it won't have a clear endpoint. And when it started is nebulous too. And yet, an institution is a space. It encompasses people and things. You can feel like you are a part of it with others. It can provide shelter or support. An institution is executable and self-modifying. It has a mission or a foundational statement or a mandate or rules or all of these. It follows them, but it can also rewrite these statements like a virus, a piece of software that changes itself over time to avoid detection or to survive in an environment that itself is also changing. Um, an institution can oscillate between a vehicle and a prison. An institution doesn't need institutionality, but it tends to gravitate towards it. It is a machine for producing new ways, new habits, or reproducing existing ones. And an institution is a practice. It is a boat you build while sailing on it, the path you make by walking or the language you learn by speaking it. Thanks.
Thanks, Sean, and thanks for being uh, so timely. Um, our final speaker is Courtney Pedersen. Uh, could you come up and do the images? Courtney's Head of Discipline for Visual Arts, and many of you would know her very well. Um, a senior lecturer in art history and theory at QUT. Her research explores gender, creative practice-led research, histories of the local and visual arts pedagogy. She completed her PhD, a study of feminism, ge genealogy and social history through public installation art 10 years ago. Prior to that, she was a freelance art writer and practicing artist for over uh, the last decade, having studied photography at Victorian College of the Arts in the 1990s. Courtney is currently a co-director of the Feminist Art Collective Level and a board member for Eyeline Publishing and Box Copy Contemporary Art Space in Brisbane. Please welcome Courtney. Look, I'd also like to um, acknowledge and honour the traditional owners of the land where we are meeting today. And also, without wanting to diminish that acknowledgement at all, I would also like to set the tone of my brief response to this topic today with another acknowledgement, and that is to those in the room who felt like they barely got a chance to take a breath after drafting their six-year funding EOIs for the Australia Council before having to start on their Senate inquiry submissions for the MPEA. And, uh, and for those of you all feeling that fatigue at the moment, I salute you. Um, as the daughter of a blue collar um, unionist family, I entered the art world with an extremely deep suspicion of institutions. Um, having said that, I have started to recognise that we have never been so institutionalised and the institution has never been so precarious simultaneously. I've come to see bureaucracy as the real enemy, um, but maybe that has something to do about my now embedded position in the institution. But I carry um, from my history a personal prejudice that collectivisation is inherently preferable. And this has undoubtedly shaped my long conviction that the artist collective or ARI is a desirable thing. In the, in the Brisbane of the 1980s that um, Peter has been doing so much work to um, kind of rediscover and document, I didn't understand the principle of, ins of art institutional critique or institutional critique um, directed at the art world because it didn't appear to me that we really had any of any great substance. Um, and that being that even the art museum was such a young thing in its form at that time. Um, in the Brisbane of that time, critique was a political position directed at much broader political structures and mechanisms that extended well beyond the art world. For those of you who were in Brisbane in the 70s and 80s, you will understand that, that position. So it wasn't until I studied art in Melbourne where they enjoyed the structures that were residual from a 19th century cultural life and the power that came with that position that I understood the complicity between the art world and other structures of power. Um, and as a consequence, in the 1990s, I found myself drawn to the practices and activities of contemporary artists who discussed this relationship in explicit ways, and this led me to work with artists of similar convictions. Back in Brisbane of the 1980s, it seemed to me as a teenage observer that artist-initiated activity wasn't critiquing culture, it was constructing culture. It was making 
an art world. Um, and this is very much the kind of productive relationship between the artist-run initiative that Terry's already spoken about and spoken about as well. Um, I suppose in Brisbane at that time, it gave me a chance to observe that perhaps as activity that people associate with a much earlier period. So this inversion of the role of artist-initiated activity in what has been characterised as the 90s of institutional critique has proved quite helpful um, to me in maintaining a sense of the role of the artist as the engine of a critical culture. Um, and so what I discovered when I graduated was an industrial reality of the life of the artist, which said that the artist represented the model precariat, which now we have all come to live, and that the artist was very much at the mercy of an institutionalised noblesse oblige. In the artist-run initiative, this reality, then and still now, is foregrounded, and the opinions, actions and meanings generated by practitioners are prioritised. And that's, I think, particularly important in a world where we obsess so much about audience. And that's not to say that audiences aren't important, but this discussion of audiences, though somehow it is something ultimately separated from the practitioner, I think, is also a false, a false separation. The RE was and still is crucial because two decades of working in this industry have reinforced, rather than kind of shaken a belief, that artists still um, carry many of the greatest risks of making art. And we can now extend that, I think, to a class of cultural workers who have the same conditions, industrial conditions as artists. But that is that artists and those in that same position um, face, certainly carry the financial risk, they carry the greatest occupational risk, and I mean that in terms of health and safety aspects, but also that they carry the emotional and psychological risk. Now, one of the things that I've found always dangerous about talking about emotional risk is that we can find ourselves in danger of reinforcing this romantic myth of the artist. But this is where feminism and, um, and feminist uh, theory has been so incredibly useful. I think, in that it offers substantial benefits to understanding this emotional risk, because what feminist critique revealed, of course, was that emotional work is real, that emotional risk is real, and that the romanticization of this risk is inherently destructive. The romantic artist becomes an extension of the 19th century idea of the angel in the house, you know, the woman who suffers for the greater good. So I find it fascinating that in this 21st century environment of the rhetoric of a working life driven by one's passions, which has overwhelmingly been extended to the whole labour market, that it is increasingly expected that all workers should personally wear this level of risk. So as individuals, perhaps we are institutions, but as individuals in society, are we all like artists now? Now I was asked, to talk about um, what, the art, art, what the art institution means in the context of artists by institutions. Um, and I want to flip forward now, aware of time, to discussion of, the, of one of the artist collectives that I've been involved with most recently, which is um, the feminist collective level. Now, Level was initiated not by myself, but by Courtney Coombs, Rachel Haynes and Alice Lang, three Brisbane-based practitioners, with the intention of being an explicitly feminist 
artist-run initiative. And what I found compelling about Level as it was um, started was, as an idea and as a project was that its strategies always included crucial conversations between artists and other cultural practitioners so that even when it functioned as a gallery space, it built relationships as its fundamental material. Relationships between artists, curators, writers, academics, um, institutional directors and so forth. Understanding that institutions are not monolithic entities, but structures made up of often invisible alliances, enmities, fiefdoms, and individuals just doing whatever they can to guarantee the future and fortune of their own department or area of enthusiasm. So when a single museum or art centre director can be persuaded within this field of relationships, not particularly by level, but within the field of relationships between artists, artist-run spaces, and other cultural workers, when they can be persuaded that paying viz copy fees is not detrimental to their own institution's future, when a single curator can feel confident in their conviction that gender equity is important for the quality of the art they exhibit as much as any abstract notion of fairness which they feel may interfere with their autonomy, we all benefit. So for me, when I observed what Level was doing, they reaffirmed an earlier conception that we can trace back to the 1960s and 70s of the feminist artist as an activist artist based on relationships. Artist-driven institutions are often in as precarious financial positions and social positions as artists themselves. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this, um, of this brief kind of response, there is no stable centre now. There are no guarantees of institutional stability anywhere. So those things that we came to take for granted as being uh, reliable, predictable, um, and socially accepted um, stable institutions have all been um, you know, destabilised in one way or another. The museum, the university, and even the democratic principles of the rule of law are now all apparently up for negotiation. So even institutions are artists now, and indeed, perhaps, artists, we are all institutions, negotiating survival and risk on a day-by-day -day basis. Artist collectives and artist-run initiatives offer models of resilience and cooperation that not only offer a great deal, therefore, I think, to the development of art and to our understanding of the histories of art, but also to all institutions and to all structures that face similar levels of precarity or precariousness. So I always like to tell people, some of you will have heard this tale, and it may be apocryphal, but it was told to me with such passion, I always I cling to this as an interesting snapshot of where we are now. This is a, an image of a work that Level was involved in in the time that I've been associated with Level um, uh, from last year called This Is Not The Work. And the point about this particular work was that we were questioning where is the work of the artist, but also who is also then connected in this as an unfunded, ungovernment-funded organisation or institution or association or collective, as we prefer, Level has to maintain an ongoing, very interesting negotiation with a range of other institutional partners in order to survive and to continue working. 
Now in this apocryphal tale, as told to me by someone who worked at a university that will not be named, a consultant was brought in to brief academics on the rising model of education where universities were increasingly supposed to think of themselves as businesses servicing clients. This is over a decade ago. Um, and when this consultant was telling academics about this ongoing servicing of clients, one of the academics stood up and complained and said, I don't want to think of my students as clients. I want to think of my students as students. And the consultant said, oh, I'm so sorry. No, you've misunderstood. The clients are employers. The students are your product. <laughs> and so I'm fascinated by this. Right, this story, to my mind, what has been resistant in the artist-run initiative is the idea that somehow not just works of art, but the work of artists and artists themselves were the product. And that somehow the client was this market. And so this inversion, which has now become standard, I think, across so many industries, actually finds its microcosm in, within the art world. And that artist-run initiatives, in their agility and their um, ingenuity, and their collectivization, always within their collective effort, offer us a particular model of seeing the world that is actually quite helpful to us all in many different uh, contexts. So thank you. Uh, we now have a couple of minutes where we can converse amongst ourselves in a public way. Uh, before Daniel McEwen um, responds to the panel. Um, I wondered whether any one of you want to open up with a question or a statement. Um, no? um, I'm happy to launch into a general kind of comment about this present moment does seem as though we're entering a new level of potential activism given the um, threats from Brandis and the uh, dramatically uh, reduced uh, budgets that many small artist organisations will be uh, confronting, and these are artist organisations that generally have been so lean that to pull a person out means that the organisation no longer can survive. I'd actually dispute that. I think one of the things that's really interesting is when the Art Workers Alliance went under, I, I was out of town, I was in interstate. It had budgetary issues, and what puzzled me was why the organisation didn't simply do what the organisation did when it began. When the Art Workers Alliance began on the basis of the Art Workers Union of Queensland, one of the reasons for the change was, was, that the, was the narrow focus of the Art Workers Union. And there were eight people who'd been board members and committee members who'd gone into state to get out of town. And it was very difficult to keep it going. And the idea was to actually expand things. And expand we did. Uh, but starting in, in 86, 87, Ireland, if I recall, the initial, there were some budgetary um, funds that we were able to kind of pull to, to produce Ireland, but a large amount of the kind of preparatory work was all done for nothing. And it wasn't until mid-1988, so this is two years, 
So uh, that anybody was employed at all, so there was no, no one paid in an organisation. So there's this kind of interesting kind of tension between um, things going bad, and I agree that, that, that these funding cuts are really horrendous and, and, and we've got to kind of argue a, a, a against the kind of approach that Brandis is taking. But I also think it's important to recognise that there have been times when the infrastructure that we have now, one, wasn't there, and two, was built up without funding structures to build it. Um, there were, for example, no clear state government funds available right through until the early 90s. Um, it is a bizarre, a bizarre fact that the initial funding for the IMA came not from the Australia Council but from the Queensland state government um, uh, we, via the good offices and a lot of support from the person who, a guy called Arthur Creeley his name was, and he was one of the first cultural um, bureaucrats employed by a state government in Queensland. It's a bizarre contradiction. But it's possible to do stuff. It's just that when you've gotten used to having a structure, the idea that you can, uh, with funding and so on, the idea that the, the, the funding will go and that everything will stop is a kind of interesting problem. But, I mean, that's, I think, a product of us building and the Courtney, infrastructure. Do you want to respond yeah, to that? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I, I understand what you mean, Peter, and I think that's true to a degree, but it's also true that our whole industry has shifted. And what is expected from organisations, even organisations on virtually no funding, is a level of professionalism and reach and, uh, and a whole bunch of other aspects like marketing, which were never part of, mm. of our world at that point, that those things are seen as fundamental to ever being able to achieve funding. Um, and that those things are the things that a staff member or what have you are, are really key in being able to, to um, you know, kind of keep going. So uh, I understand what you mean about this idea about that we were able to just do it on nothing. And artists, and many artists still do effectively do things on nothing. We know that one of the greatest conceits of a funding application is that you say this is the money that is going, that's going to come in, this is the money that's, coming, that's going out. Actually, the artist fees will be rendered as in-kind support. That's a, you know, that's everybody understands how that works, right? So this understanding is of nothing. However, I think that there is a sense that that those particularly younger people who have come through an environment of seeing how the flow-on effects of that relatively modest arts funding enriches a much broader range of industry, and I think this is really important about the uh, emphasis that Helen put on the relationship between Melbourne now and the tourism office, is that the beneficiaries of cultural activity in Melbourne now are not artists and the cultural community, the beneficiaries of cultural activity in Melbourne now so go so far beyond that. So this, this idea that somehow that work would still be tended for free for the profit of, a, of whole other sectors, I think that's something that people aren't going to feel so comfortable about now. No. And I think that's a historical difference. I agree with that. Do you want to make comments? Um, about that? No, no. I mean, it's, it's partially because of the, it seems like it's focused um, to an Australian context, which I um, yeah. prefer to listen to other people talking about it. But at the same time, just um, I think the idea that um, when funding is pulled away, that, uh, that institutions will sort of crumble. Yeah, it does seem, does seem sort of erroneous uh, when it comes to art. With, 
which are things that which already rely on so much volunteer labor. You know, like it's a, you can understand that if all of a sudden uh, a bunch of funding was taken away from a for-profit corporation, that no one, no one there has any interest or passion for it at all. So of course it's going to stop if it's not, you know, making a profit. Like it's just how those work. But it is. I mean, I, I have to. I have to at the same time sort of think, well, yeah, you know, even if money is taken away from, from artists, it's obviously better if they have it, but they will still continue to do something. And, um, but that's not a good con contribution. Are there any other comments from the panel? Because we could probably throw now to Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> They're really just questions um, to have you guys speak a bit more. But I'm interested, um, I think the first time I heard the concept of the precariat, um, I felt like I'd found like a really essential description for a lot of uh, experiences that I and lots of people have, maybe from the moment we wake up in the morning. Um, but I think in particular I'm interested in this idea of the precariat and, and how it affects that projectification idea that we were uh, talking about before. So I'm curious um, if you guys can talk about or even give some more context to what effect that projectification has on Ari's, given especially that it feels more important than ever that we frame every activity of Ari's as uh, sort of specific defined projects that somehow float independent of a space that's still essential, or you know, volunteer staffing that's still essential as well. I have no answer to that. It's it's an interesting. This is an ongoing dilemma. This notion that somehow the infrastructure has been built, and the infrastructure exists somewhere, probably on the internet. You know, is that kind of have that sense that that's where it kind of exists, and that all you have to do is drop projects into that into that infrastructure. Um, so that sense of, um, that in that regard, I think there's a kind of interesting parallel um, uh, in this country uh, towards our attitudes towards infrastructure generally, actually. The infrastructure is the last priority and yes, it's the fund and yet it's the fundamental bones on which so much of it is built. So I'm not sure that I can offer much more than that. We live these dilemmas. It's, inter it's an interesting question though because um, as you know, Sean was saying about the, these expectations of the immateriality of the world being affected so much by the internet. Is this a particular point in time for us? Um, that this, this sense that things exist in the ether when there are real, you know, kind of bricks and mortar requirements. I'm not sure whether that's um, you know, something that connects with what you were talking about. Or it does kind of lead on to my other question, which probably you know, elegantly connects that I'm curious as to um, what potential there is in the disruption of the internet to this kind of system, or is there a hope for us in this immateriality um, that can withstand the kind of constraints that we're talking about? Is the internet going to save us? <laughs> Has it already? Um, hmm. 
I mean, obviously the answer is no. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to think of the most interesting way to, to say no. Um, it, yeah, in large part because uh, because a little bit of what um, you were talking about in terms of well, in Helen, what you were referring to with uh, Helen and, and the uh, trying to trace the flows of, of money and where. Um, value is being generated around all of this cultural activity. And um, yeah, it is things like internet platforms, it is real estate. And so it's difficult to see how the internet sort of is going to be the, the saving answer. But at the same time, you know, you can't deny the fact that it, it, it has provided some um, tools and resources for people to use to sort of adapt to these conditions, you know, like uh, when rent becomes too expensive because real estate prices are going up, then, uh, you know, either um, uh, occupying a space, you know, at certain times or just not using a space at all and organizing um, that activity in, a, in another way, I mean, becomes, becomes something that needs to be done. So. There's a, there's, a, there's a point that follows on from that, which if you pick up on the real estate question, one of the things that drove a lot of the artist-run, or made possible a lot of the artist-run practice in Brisbane in the 1980s and into the 90s, was in fact the unstable um, nature of the city itself, where you had buildings in transition between one stage develop and the, ne and the next, and most of the spaces in the 80s that that had been running that produced us that little pause at the end of 1988, most of them actually stopped operating because they got demolished. Um, and uh, it's kind of like one of the uh, amazing things. I mean, I, I, on my way to the IMA today, I dropped into, um, what's it called, the bunk room or whatever it is where Isn't and Brutal and all those other places used to be behind where the IMA is. It's now a backpackers. Uh, and to have a look at what they'd done, to have a look at what they'd done to the vacant space between the IMA and the building where the IMA used to be, some you know, and vac and the building behind it, where projects used to happen between the IMA and the artist-run space in this building, which was full of you know studio spaces and people's kind of warehouse spaces and so on, um, and you know it's it's a pool and it's a backpackers and it's and it's all completely transformed. Um, where the the weird thing about this show that I'm working on is that it will open on almost exactly the 30th anniversary of the demolition of one of the spaces that features in it, which is a space called the Observatory. But at the same time, there was also other spaces attached to one flat which were there, and other spaces attached to the publishing house of Art Walk and, uh, and Art Wonder Stories. And um, there was a whole arts infrastructure in a triangular block between George Romer and Turbot Street, which all went in um, at the very end of March 1986 and then sat for 20 years as an open-air car park. Governments now plan the development of cultural enlivened environments. They happened organically and they pulled it all away. That's the kind of tension that we're getting. We're not looking at actually what's going on all of the time and it's that sort of stuff that is really fascinating to sort of see when you look historically. What's moved, where's it moved, why is it moved? And I think, you know, I don't know what the internet does for that because it apparently doesn't move unless, of course, you actually 
have your, your, your RE web server and then you stop paying for it and then it ain't there anymore. So there are actually artist run spaces, traces, which were internet based, which have actually gone. The farm, can't find it online because although they had a certain amount of, 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 of internet presence, when the space folded, they stopped paying an ISP to keep the material up. It may well be on a floppy somewhere, but it's actually less visible than yeah. the paper in the library. Can I take that as a comment and open it up to the floor? Are there, is there anyone who would like to address questions to the panel or make a general statement about the subject in hand?
think it's um, any other comments or we can wind up. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming.